Welcome to Following the Fire, a podcast about rethinking everything and following God through the wilderness, wherever we are led. This episode is part of a study series in which we really dig into a single topic across several episodes. If you like these special series, you can get them a full month before everyone else by supporting the podcast at patreon.com slash following the fire. And a huge thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. The support means so much to us. Now, on with the show. Because you are good to me. Hey, welcome to the Following the Fire study series about faith and science. Focusing mostly on Genesis chapter 1. Talking about science, the Bible, and the origins debate. Last time I went over the concept again of the two books, the book of scripture and the book of science or the book of the world, that explains the idea that when science and faith seem to clash, we really need to take a look at which one we're interpreting the wrong way. So as I promised last time, each one of these episodes, I'm going to start out with a little bit of like a cool animal or something, just to show the amazing science slash creation that that's out there. And this one is it just, I kind of blew my mind. When I think of caterpillars, I think of a very quiet creature, but there are a, a few caterpillars out there that make really weird sounds. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. There's one particular moth called the squeaking silk moth, otherwise known as Rodinia fugax. And the caterpillar of this moth actually makes a squeaking sound when it's harassed or threatened by a predator. Uh, Unlike grasshoppers and cicadas who make sounds by like rubbing their exoskeletons together, like their legs, that's how they make the sounds. These caterpillars scream with their mouths, but they don't have really a respiratory system. So what they do is they suck in air into their gut and they squeak out a bag, basically... A super high-pitched squeaky burp. (laughs) And let me play this sound for you real quick. It's absolutely fascinating. And let's be honest, kind of adorable. As we're starting to step into the world of Genesis 1, you know, the first first episode of this series, the study series, I kind of set up the groundwork for how the Bible and science really don't and shouldn't conflict. What I want to look at today is the many and sundry views of creation. We tend to think, especially with the way some evangelical adjacent groups have really, really pushed the young earth stuff, we tend to think that either you believe in the Bible and you believe in a young earth, like four or 6,000 years old, whatever, or you are an atheist and you believe in millions of years or millions or billions of years age of the earth and the universe. And while those two extremes are there, and they're pretty pretty common, there's a ton of different ways to look at the, the creation that try to tie in 
scripture or specifically reject it. John Lennox has a great book titled Seven Days That Divide the World that really talks a lot about this. Just about the fact that these seven days mentioned in Genesis chapter 1 of creation, well, 6 plus plus the rest day, how that has really become a divisive thing. And he, he goes through different uh, options, different ways of looking at it. And I recommend reading that book. It's a really good book. John Lennox has some fab- fabulous uh, – he's a fabulous writer. He's got great some great stuff to say. So while it's, it's a very potentially contentious topic because, I mean, churches have split. People have gotten fired. I've heard of people not speaking to their parents anymore over this kind of stuff. Uh, on and on. And it's not just contentious, but it's also confusing. And I think that speaks to the level of discord that we see in the world around this topic. And I I'm, I don't pretend to be an expert on this. I think if you want to have, if you really want to dig deep into the expertise of this stuff, or if you are curious about it, I recommend, again, going to biologos.org. Biologos has a great set of, there's a tons of, uh, like even teen class curriculum, book recommendations, videos, little animation series. It's it's pretty good stuff that, that talks a lot about this. But I, I've done a ton of reading myself. I've always been fascinated by the concept of how the world came to be. I've got tons of books on both sides of the argument uh, saying the earth is old, the earth is young. And one thing I want to make clear is I don't think that this should be something over which we divide because really why does it matter it it shouldn't it shouldn't be something that is a quote-unquote salvation issue but some people like ken ham and the answers in genesis folks have made it that way which is sad in and of itself but enough about my soapbox on that i I don't want to get too far into the weeds on that but backing up let's go look at genesis 1 so we all have a lot of questions about Genesis 1. I mean, how old is the earth? How did the Big Bang happen? Did it happen? How many accounts of creation are there in Genesis 1 to 2? Are these days 24-hour earth days? How did the light get there before the sun? Is Genesis 1 actually seven contiguous days of a single week? Or seven days spread out over some longer time? Is Genesis 1 a scientific description, or is it something else? And what about evolution? Does that fit into things? Is that anti-God? And then something we don't talk about usually when we talk about Genesis 1 is the rest, from which we get the idea of Sabbath. What does the God's rest mean? Does it mean he actually doesn't work anymore? I mean, why does God need to rest to begin with? Was there a defined Garden of Eden, or was it the entire planet? Were Adam and Eve even real people? Were Adam and Eve the first two literal people on Earth, or not? Did the snake actually talk? Was it a snake? (laughs) Was the snake Satan? Why would God put a temptation tree in the garden? Was there death, physical death, before the quote-unquote fall of man? If there was no death... What did the carnivores eat? And why do even ancient carnivores have pointy teeth? And then there's things like, where did Cain's wife come from? And why doesn't the Bible mention dinosaurs? Why 
does the story of creation repeat itself? And on and on and on. So what do we do with Genesis 1? Well, to start, there are so very many different views of it, of it among Christians. I just kind of want to lay these out on the table for us to see. And I have my preferred interpretation, but I'm not going to get into that today. My goal for today is to just, for, for us to all understand how complicated this topic is and how these things can be seen from many different directions. So, so let's start with some common ones and then I'll get into some uncommon ones. The first set of interpretations that are pretty common, they, they can kind of be grouped under a term concordism. So some Christians approach the text of Genesis as if it has modern science embedded in it, or it dictates what modern science should look like. And this concordism it kind of expands beyond just Genesis 1. It's, it's the attempt to make scientific discoveries can coincide with the teachings of the Bible. So they believe that the Bible must agree or be in concord with all the findings of contemporary science. So science comes up and discovers something new. They figure out a way to make it work. Like light travels at a certain speed and these lights are so far away in the sky. How did, if it's a young earth, how did they get here? So how did they get there so quickly? And then they have to come up with a way that that happened to make it work. But all of it comes down to they only see one book, really. Science and the, the, the world should be seen through the lens of Genesis 1. So the, I've already mentioned the first one that I want to talk about, Young Earth Creationism. There's a quote from AnswersInGenesis.org, which is uh, the organization, Answers in Genesis is the organization set up by Ken Ham. Same guy who made the Ark Encounter in Kentucky. It says, on, it says on the website, God created the heavens and the earth fully formed and functioning in six days, 6,000 years ago, around 4,004 BC. The context of Genesis 1, as well as other places in Scripture, make it clear these days were ordinary 24-hour days. God's original creation was perfect, with no death or suffering. As you can see, very, very clear, definite this is how it is. It makes it clear. Now, I've said before, anytime someone says things like, well, the scripture is obvious or the scripture is clear, I kind of, as my kids would say, that's kind of sus. I can hear my, my children like screaming in the distance from saying that. Anyway, so this date that they have of 4004 BC-ish, this date was determined in the early 17th century by a guy named Archbishop John Usher in Northern Ireland. So what he did is he assumed that the, that Genesis, the Genesis 1 week was the creation of the earth, and at the end of the week, that was the starting point for humanity. So he took the genealogies given in Genesis to complete his calculation of the earth. You know, all the places it mentions this person begat that person, begat that person, all that kind of thing. There's several of them in the Old Testament and, and the New as well, uh, especially around Jesus. But, you know, there's genealogies. So what he did is he, he assumed, okay, Friday of the creation week was day zero. And then look at all the generations. Assume 40-ish years per generation. 
plus the people who lived 900 whatever years, that kind of thing. Calculated it all, and he got to October 23rd, 4004 BC, by our calendar, is the day that humanity began. So this view, honestly, is rather anti-scientific. These groups typically see science that provides an age of the earth that is old as incomplete or incorrect or outright fraudulent. Even though the proponents consider themselves more scientific than mainstream scientists. It's kind of ironic. You take a date that is calculated by some random dude in 17th century Ireland, and that's more authoritative than science. I don't know. That, that kind of sums up what young earth creationism is. It's, it is what it, it says on the tin. It's young earth, and it was all done in six days, six literal days, etc. Probably something that you're pretty familiar with. Then there's kind of a lot of riffs on that idea. There's the day-age interpretation, otherwise known as progressive creation. Now, with the, the difference with this one is it allows for a very old earth, you know, but what they do is they, they see each day in Genesis 1 actually referring to a very long age of time, perhaps even billions of years. And interestingly, biological evolution is still rejected by this group, even though they have billions of years to work with. They say that all things were created ex nihilo, meaning from nothing. But it just was, God took a long time to do it for whatever reason. And similar to the next one. This next kind of interpretation is also referred to as the appearance of age. Now they say that in reality, creation did happen about 6,000 years ago, during literal six 24-hour days, but that it was created to look like it had a history of billions of years for whatever reason. I mean, there's more to it than that, but that's kind of the, the summary. Another really interesting one is the intermittent day theory, still having six 24-hour days, but massively long gaps between each day. So they're like, yeah, sure, it was Sunday through Saturday, but that Sunday was a billion years from the Monday, which was a billion years from the, the Tuesday, and on and on. And the last one in this concordism group that I'll mention, once, once again, there are many, many variations of this stuff, is the gaps, it, it's called the gap theory, otherwise known as the ruin restitution theory or the recreation view. Now what they say is that there's an undefined gap of time between Genesis 1.1 and 1.2. So Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And they see that as the entire initial creation summed up in, in one sentence. So after in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, period, then you have this massive amount of time. And then in verse 2, it says, Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So it's not just the time difference, it goes even further. And this was popularized in the Schofield Reference Bible. Maybe, and maybe this is kind of a good side note. Keep in mind that when you see or when you use reference Bibles or even study Bibles of various kinds, all the, the notes and stuff are opinion. But some of these books and some these commentaries and some of these study Bibles have a very distinct drive and purpose behind what they're doing. And so... 
The Schofield Reference Bible and the Gap Theory explain things this way. Genesis 1.1 describes a previous creation of the earth, which was ruled by Lucifer, Satan, the devil, before he rebelled against God, back when he was the good guy. And during that time, there were many different kinds of creatures that we don't have now, like dinosaurs. And people looked kind of different, like Australopithecus and Denisovian and all these other pre-homo sapien humanoids. That's why we find those skeletons in the earth, and that's why we found these bones, because it was during this Genesis 1-1 creation that Lucifer reigned over the earth. And then when Satan rebelled against God and fell, life on earth was completely destroyed in some way. And the earth became, quote, formless and void at that time. And then, about 6,000 years ago, life was recreated by God in six 24-hour days. All, all this together gives you a very old earth, explains all the crazy uh, skeletons and fossils we find, and allows them to claim a young earth creation worldview. Then we get into the non-concordist interpretations of things. Now, non-concordist is kind of a general term since all these, these interpretations are really all over the place. Basically, these interpretations do not see Genesis 1 as historical, scientific, chronological account of material creation of the universe. The first one I'll mention is the framework hypothesis. This theory holds that the story found in Genesis 1 is not historical, chronological, or scientific, but rather a theological framework. And there are many variations to this theme, but one basic one is that day one, days one through three are the days of formation. Day one, God distinguishes light from darkness, and day four through six are days of filling. So, you know, since God, in day one, he distinguished light from dark in the formation, and then day four, he fills the void with sun, moon, and stars. And there's a lot more to this framework hypothesis, but it just sees it as a, a theological way to describe how things were done. And like, I, like we always do, I'll put, put all these links in the show notes so you guys can track what I'm talking about and le read up a little bit more if you want to, because there's a lot more to read on these things. I'm just kind of giving you the high-level view. Then there's Proclamation Day. This holds that the days of Genesis 1 took place in God's throne room, wherein God proclaimed each step of creation. And the throne room days are not related to days or time periods on earth in any way. And I, that's about all I understand about that one. There's not a whole lot that makes sense with that. The creation poem idea is the next one. This idea holds that the number and ordering of the, quote, days in Genesis 1 are chosen for poetic and thematic reasons rather than historical or scientific ones. In other words, God did all these things, but the order and timing of them are less important than the, than the historical timeline. So by viewing the text as poetic instead of historical, it allows for a wide range of interpretations for all aspects. So it just kind of leaves it wide open and to interpret it any way you want to. Then there's the kingdom covenant interpretation. And advocates of this view argue that the primary purpose of Genesis 1 and 2 
is to explain and show God's relationship to his creation as the covenant maker. This account is similar to ancient Near Eastern land-grant treaties, interestingly. And as a great king, the creation account describes the world which God has granted to humanity to have dominion over, just like a king would do for a group of subjects. This means that the account is not actually about the physical creation of the universe, but trying to describe how God is making a covenant with his people. And then there's the cosmic temple view. This view is that Genesis 1 is kind of about God setting up and inaugurating the cosmos as his temple. And on day 7, he takes his place on his throne in that temple and begins his rule. Now, in this view, the text is not concerned with the creation of the physical universe at all, but, the, but on the role of humanity in it and assigning of purpose for all things, just like would have been done in, a, in the inauguration of a temple or the dedication of a temple. The things going into a temple are just normal, ordinary things. But once the priest or the god or the deity or however you want to put it, once that person deems this a holy place and that is a holy object, suddenly those things change their meaning and they have new purpose. So that's all of the pretty common non-concordist views and there's a lot of overlap between those and there's there's a few others that I'm not we won't get into. Suffice it to say there's a ton of Concordus and non-concordus ones. And there's there's a few that I kind of wanted to throw in there as well. They're very uncommon that um, are still interesting. There's hyperliteralism, which is taking the Bible creation account word for word while not allowing any room for interpreting portions of the text as being metaphorical and not often leaving room for interpreting the text in context. Ideas off like this are where we get to things like geocentrism and flat earthers because it describes a dome above the earth and pillars below. And if you are a hyper-literalist, you're going to say, oh, well, there must be literally a dome and there must be literally pillars below the earth holding us up. And even young earth creation people don't get that literal. There's the six-day revelatory interpretation, meaning that Genesis 1 is a story of God telling Moses about the creation, and each day God told Moses about another aspect of the creation and gave Moses the evening and the morning to think about what it meant and write it down. So in, in this view, creation didn't happen in six days. It's, it took six days for God to tell about it to Moses, which I think is <laughs> it's a kind of a fascinating look at the, at the text. I, I could have gone a thousand years and never got that interpretation of it. But Then there's the days of divine fiat interpretation, in which the story is from God's perspective in heaven, and since God's view of things is outside of time, the actual timeline is unknown. Even though they think it did, it did happen that way, it could have been, who knows how long it took. And then there's the creation of the garden, or local creation uh, opinion which says that the actual creation of the universe is in Genesis 1.1, and the rest of the account is about God just making the Garden of Eden. So Genesis 1.1, God created the heavens and the earth, that's everything. And then 1.2 and following is just about 
God creating that specific garden. And like I said, hundreds of variations, combinations of these things. And all this to just remind us how complicated this topic is and how complicated the Bible is. Everybody can read one thing and everybody can come up with a different interpretation. One really important question that I didn't mention about Genesis 1 that I think we need to ask is why is this in the Bible? Honestly, that is the first question we should ask if we believe that the Bible is given to us in any way, shape, or form by God or that it has holy teachings in it. The first thing we should ask when we approach any part of the Bible is why is this in here? What is it trying to teach me? And And that's something that we need to really think carefully about because that should inform all of our interpretation from that point on. And we'll get into more about why this is in the Bible starting in the next lesson. Suffice it to say, it's here for a reason. It's here to teach us something. And I think our goal and our duty is to figure out what that reason is. Not to just assume that we know, but to study hard. Like I, like I said before, the Bible is not a, a book to just be read. The Bible is a book to be studied. So to close out, one big temptation with all these interpretations of Genesis 1 is to let one aspect of things drive the interpretation more than it should. Uh, either science or the literal reading of Scripture. We tend to get overly concerned with the debate, and we risk missing that point of why is it there? And so to avoid this, I think we need to look at the passage in its original context and time. And that's where I'm getting at with you cannot just read the Bible. The context, the history, the language, the time it was written, who it was written to, those are very important things. And so we'll get into that next time. If you have any other uh, interesting interpretations you've heard of, or if you have just some general questions or comments about this stuff, shoot me an email, followingthefirepodcast at gmail.com. Be happy to get back with you, or we'll address it on the next episode of the podcast. See you later. Because you won't stop being good to me.